0: Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. I'm pleased to be joined by Julian Treasure. He's author and international speaker on sound, speaking and listening. You may have already heard Julian on one of his many inspirational TED Talks, Um, which have had over 50 million views, um, including one which is in the top 10 TED Talks of all time. Um, Julian, many thanks for joining us today.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Um, Can you tell us about yourself, please, what you do?
1: Sure. Well, I have kind of two parallel existences professionally. One is that I run a company called The Sound Agency, which has been around for 18 years now. And that answers the question, how does your brand sound? for major brands around the world, now specializes particularly in designing sound in spaces that are run by organizations. And so we have a product called Mood Sonic, and that is helping people to be more productive and healthier in open plan offices, education, hospitals, and retail scenarios. So that's the sound agency. Um, and then along the way, I got to do these TED Talks and uh, wrote some books and so I have a kind of parallel life um, which is speaking about the power of sound and in particular about the importance of listening and the, the importance of being able to speak powerfully you know two skills that we don't teach in, in school at all pretty much speaking and listening so that's my other existence and uh, my passion really is to get everybody in the world to start listening consciously so important, and so many people simply don't listen very well at all.
0: Absolutely, I completely agree with you there. Yeah, we, um, we think we listen, but we don't really listen, we don't really take on board what people say or like the just the natural world around us or the, our environments or whatever. Mm. Um, I mean, what got you into sound? I mean, I know you're a musician, but can you tell us where you know where your journey began?
1: Yes, I well I am a musician and I think musicians listen to the world slightly differently from non-musicians. If you're playing in a band or in an orchestra, then you have to have a kind of multi-track, very attentive listening. If you're not listening to all the other instruments quite attentively, then you're not playing very well, you're not in the group. And so it's a kind of gestalt listening that a band or an orchestra has. And I think that discipline of listening in that way, being able to listen to a lot of different things at the same time and pay attention to them in a, in a way that perhaps um, non-musicians don't get the discipline to do, was with me all the way through my previous career, where I had a I started and grew and then sold a magazine publishing business, producing contract magazines for big brands around the world, uh, you know, customer magazines. Uh, but you know I was still playing every evening or most evenings and I was reflecting on the fact the world didn't sound very good so when I sold that magazine publishing business in 2002 I started the sound agency pretty much immediately and the mission was to uh, persuade organizations to start listening and making better sound so I did a lot of research at the beginning about does the sound affect us yes it does powerfully in four significant ways which was the subject of my very first ted talk and then does it matter that organizations are unconsciously creating this kind of noise yes it does because it has a huge effect on customer satisfaction on sales on productivity on well-being all sorts of really important things Uh, so it was clear that there was a, a really big gap in the market there to start asking organizations to listen and start to help them design sound in a way that was productive and effective and appropriate for each organization instead of just randomly and accidentally generating noise which is what most of them still do unfortunately
0: yeah absolutely we're going to talk about that in a minute and um, and how people can sort of identify the, ne- the you know the negative sounds and how they can make a positive impact on 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 improving that space. Um but just to go back on the musician thing, um obviously I I, I play the piano very badly. <laughs> I used to play quite well, but I haven't played for ages and I'm I'm trying to kind of get back in trying to get back into it. But um I I I love the fact that you say about a musician, you if you're playing in a band, you do have to you have to tune your ears in to everybody's vibe. I mean when you if, if people are listening and they're not musicians, but if you go to a jazz like um live jazz gig, for instance and you just see the musicians nodding to each other when they're throwing the lead across i think that's um that's a really really powerful thing it's sort of you know a visual um representation of how sound is uh, sort of transferred between musicians but, um,
1: absolutely yes well most musicians really live through their ears so uh, different people have different senses which are primary and for the vast bulk of people i think it's visual Certainly, that's you know it's it's the first sense we tend to think about, and it's the one that takes in most of the information around us. But at the same time, uh, our sense of hearing and the way we listen, which are two different things, of course, um, they are incredibly important. And there are plenty of people in the world for whom hearing is the primary sense, and for whom sound is the 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 biggest way in which they interact with the world. And I'm one of them.
0: Well, um, in your book, How to Be Heard and, and listeners, if you're um, if you're wondering where to find it, I'm gonna put a link on the journal of uh, website, which will be alongside the, the podcast and also on the YouTube channel and alongside the blurb here. So make sure you check it out and download it, especially his audio book, which is really great. Um and it's it's much more than just about listening and sound. It's um it's how to speak and how to public speak. So I've learned loads of things. So I'm I've already deepened my voice and I'm sitting up straight. So <laughs> But but there's much more to it than that, so thank you Julian for that, Uh, so bless you. Um, But in your book, which I found really interesting, um, you discuss the importance of listening. Um, Can you explain why listening is is really so important?
1: Well definitely, Uh, well we have four senses uh, for communicating, reading, writing, speaking, listening, two for the eyes, two for the ears, uh, two that send, two that receive. And it's interesting to me and puzzling really that we teach only two of those in school so it's a scandal if a child leaves school unable to read or write and yet every year tragically children leave school millions and millions of them all over the world leave school having never been taught how to use this amazing instrument we all play which is the human voice we can talk about that later and how to listen effectively and consciously so there's this kind of there's a conflation of hearing and listening. Speaking and listening are treated as if they're capabilities. They're not capabilities, they're skills. And that's a really important distinction because a skill is something that you can master and something that you can practice and improve. And a capability is something that's given, it's fixed, there's not not much you can do with it. So hearing is a capability. I mean there are many, many people in the world who have damaged hearing or compromised hearing in some way, shape or form. Uh, You know, I I myself have tinnitus, which is a very common condition in the Western world, particularly for drummers. Uh, So, you know, there are a lot of people for whom hearing is not perfect. Well, we've got what we've got. You can't improve it. You can try very, very hard, but you can't improve your hearing, particularly if you've damaged it, uh, which is happening all over the world now with kids. Unfortunately, many young people putting hundred decibels deep into the ear canals with earbuds for hours a day, which is flattening those tiny little cells in the inner ear and they never recover, you know, so that's we're, we're potentially raising a whole deaf generation there. Hearing is a given. Listening is a skill. So whatever the, the hearing gift that you have within reason, you can practice getting better and better at conscious listening. It's a mental process, not a physical process. You know, I could go into the, the miracle of hearing in detail. It's, it's an extraordinary sense. I mean, if you think that your eardrum is about the size of your little fingernail, and it's one membrane in your ear, which is decoding everything from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony to an explosion, to the voices of your loved ones, all of that, range of sound is being decoded by one little membrane like that and turned into impulses in fluid and then that's being picked up by all these little hairs that uh, respond to different frequencies and as they move they're triggering neural impulses which go through to your brain and it's all put together as what you hear in your brain so that's a physical electrical mechanical neural process listening is completely different It's a mental construct. You do two things when you listen. First, you select certain things to pay attention to. So that's the first part of it, it's a selection. You hear everything around you. You're only paying attention to a small part of that at any one time. The second thing you do is you assign meaning to it. You'll immediately test each sound for danger. That's done by the oldest part of the brain and it happens far faster than our processing of sight. And that's for very good reason. You can hear what's behind you. You can't see what's behind you. So if there's a threatening noise, you know, if you're 200,000 years ago in a cave and you're sharing it with a bear or a tiger or something, you need to be very sensitive to noise from behind you. And in in a threatening world, that's true as well. So hearing is our primary warning sense. And listening in that unconscious way, this is precortical, is the first thing that happens. You'll test each sound for danger and respond accordingly. So a sudden noise will immediately give you a shot of cortisol, your fight flight hormone, before you have any chance to process it rationally, and say, so oh, it's a car backfiring, your body has got ready to fight or flee. And that's, as I say, happens far faster than your visual response can happen. But then after the initial subcortical analysis of a sound, it goes into what we now think is um, a kind of holographic processing in the whole brain. I mean, there are bits of the brain which are more involved than other bits in processing sound, but it's happening all over the place. And basically your brain is going, have I heard something like this before? What does this mean? So is it a voice I recognize? Is it a sound that I can associate with something I know? Is it brand new, in which case it might be a threat? Uh, is that my, my mother's voice or my grandmother's voice? Uh, is it a trumpet or a flute? You know, we can, uh, we're testing against a huge database of things that we've heard before and learned uh, over our life. And that is the process of listening. So I describe listening really as making meaning from sound that's what we're doing we're ascribing meaning to it so that we can respond appropriately partly subconsciously but then very much consciously after that and it has a huge effect on us it changes our our body as i've just described with fight flight or or you know the opposite like gentle surf is a very relaxing sound so anybody who is seeing this and who has trouble or listening to this who has trouble sleeping gentle surf is a very good sound to use when you are suffering from insomnia it's associated with rest relaxation and you know physically or physiologically it's very similar in cadence to the breathing of a sleeping human being so sound affects our bodies sound affects our feelings our emotions you only have to think of music to see how true that is and many people have a relationship with plenty of other sound biophilic sound so birdsong for example Uh, is a sound that many people associate with being safe. Because typically when the birds are happily tweeting around us, it's an indication that things are fine. You know, it's often been recorded that when there's a tsunami coming or something, there's an eerie silence because everything has fallen silent. They have a, a way of telling when danger is coming, I often feel sorry for lions. You know, they must be surrounded by a zone of silence around them where all the birds fall silent, so they probably never get to hear birdsong because they're seen as a threat. Uh, So that kind of sound, I mean, with Mood Sonic and the Sound Agency, we've deployed a lot of different biophilic sounds uh, which have got different physiological and psychological effects on people. The third way is cognitive. Uh, That is to say sound affects how well we can think and process information. There's lots of research on this showing that in particular, office noise and most of all other people's conversation or unwanted conversation is incredibly damaging to our ability to process sound. It's called the irrelevant sound effect. And we we are programmed to decode language. And uh, I'm sure all the listeners to this know we have no ear So, unless you put headphones on in, a, in an open plan office, you're being distracted a great deal of the time by a conversation you can overhear, which is not what you want to hear, but your brain is processing it. And I've calculated we have something in the region of bandwidth for 1.6 human conversations, not two. You can't listen to somebody else, which you, you, you can't stop doing. You know, if somebody's talking behind you about their great night out, you can't not listen to them. You can try, but it's very distracting. And it stops you from hearing the voice in your head that you need to listen to when you're doing number work or figure work. And that's why it has a devastating effect on productivity. It can be as great as cutting our productivity to one third in open plan offices. And the fourth way sound affects us is it changes our behavior, changes what we do. Mm. And there's a great example of this, uh, which is a study done by some academics in a supermarket where there were two displays of wine next to each other, identical visually, and all they did was alternate music. So on day one, they had a bit of French music, and on day two, they had a bit of German music. And then they kept doing that for weeks and weeks and weeks. And at the end, they looked at the sales of French and German wine. And what happened is that on the French music days, French wine outsold German wine by five bottles to one which may not be surprising because it does sell more in the world but on the German music days German wine outsold French wine by two bottles to one Mm. that's a massive shift in our behavior and interestingly most of the people who were uh, surveyed claimed they hadn't even noticed the music so this isn't a conscious "Ah, oh, German music, therefore I should buy German wine. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> this is an unconscious response to a barely perceived stimulus and stimulus, And that's how powerfully sound is affecting you and me and everyone listening to this every day. So it really behooves us to start being a bit more conscious about the sound around us. It's having profound effects on us all the time.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean in, in your book as well, you mentioned that you know the bodies are made up um, our bodies are made up of 70% water. Yeah. And that water conducts sound. I mean, when you suppose when you think about it, if you're in water, if you're under you know if you're swimming underground, yeah, under not underground, <laughs> if you're swimming underwater, you um is everything's amplified, isn't it? So I suppose Is that how it works, kind of thing, in in the body? Is that the same thing? And obviously,
1: sound sound works by um, moving through a medium. So you know, it's true to say in space, no one can hear you scream because there's no medium for sound to move. Although there's plenty of sound in the cosmos, interestingly, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's it's happening at frequencies we can't perceive. The sun is making sound all the time, but you can we can record it using different. Uh, um, ways of analyzing the sound and then we can pitch shift it to uh, the audible spectrum. So black holes make a very interesting noise. And, you know, I interviewed uh, a cosmologist who uh, has created the sound of the Big Bang compressed into 15 seconds, which is quite an interesting exercise. So there is a lot of sound out there, but it does require a medium. And it's a bit like if you imagine a room which is really crowded, full of people, If you barge into someone on this side, they barge into the person next to them and that kind of s- spreads across like a wave and the person on the other side falls over. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a wave propagating through a medium and that's what's happening. The molecules of air around you bounce into each other and propagate the wave mm-hmm. and it happens far faster in water than it does in air I think is it three times faster something like that sound travels a lot further in water than it does in air which is why whales for example are able to communicate over huge distances you know 50 100 miles or or at least they were able to do that before we started polluting the water with the sound of um, ship engines Mm -hmm. which are basically deafening cetaceans not to mention sonar which is sending them driving them insane and causing them to beach and um, you know really become very unwell. So uh, we're doing a lot of damage in the oceans with the noise that we're making unconsciously. Again, you know we're not trying to be nasty. It's just we don't think about sound mm-hmm. and its effects, and it's happening all the time.
0: Mm. Um, on, on us, I mean, it's obviously the negative um, effects on whales, and it's true. We're not really expecting it. You know, not really um, doing it deliberately um well not anyway um but um obviously this sort of yeah you know, how sounds affect us negatively um I mean in your book you mention um you know that it has an impact on our heart rate and, and on on our brain waves even and sort of hormone secretions and sort of breathing and also the psychological impact could you maybe sort of just touch on I mean I know there's, there's a lot to talk about really on that and and again I, I urge people to get your book how to be heard because you do cover it and um, really um, extensively but um can you just sort of touch on how negative sounds or, or maybe also maybe you know describe maybe what kind of sounds are negative to us
1: well absolutely it's a sad truth actually that many of the buildings that we spend our time in and don't forget we spend according to the research something like 93 percent of our lives indoors yeah uh, so you know, the sound in buildings is incredibly important because it's pummeling away at us all yeah. day, every day, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and sadly, many, many of the spaces that we're inhabiting are not fit for purpose, particularly the ones that are public or large um, group spaces. Um, it you know may not be the case that your home, dear listener, is inappropriate, although I do recommend that you go around your home. And just stand in each room or sit in each room with your eyes closed and ask yourself is this the best sound I could have in this room for what we are trying to achieve here whether it's resting sleeping uh, enjoying yourself working out whatever it might be what's the best sound that you could have there and many people's homes are actually rather plagued by hums and buzzes and little mm-hmm. noises that we just set aside because they've been there for years. We don't even notice them, but they're all having an effect mm-hmm. on us. And uh, mm-hmm. not to mention traffic noise from the outside or aircraft noise, uh, yeah. which is you know potentially hugely damaging. The cost of the big noise sources on society is astronomical. Mm-hmm. The World Health Organization rates noise pollution now as just behind air pollution as a serious issue, a killer. It's not just about annoyance. It works up in a kind of triangle, if you imagine a pyramid of of the effects of noise on us. At the bottom, you'd have annoyance. So, you know, a noisy neighbor from time to time, that's annoying. Uh, Or somebody driving past with a broken silencer on a a moped. I mean, I read a a study years ago, which said that that, uh, driving through Paris, could wake up 200,000 people. Uh, which is quite a big ripple effect isn't it if if you're rather uh, self-indulgent and thoughtless person it's a lot of people that you're disturbing so but that's annoying Mm. when it happens time and time again you move up to the next level and that typically is about sleep deprivation so if you're next to um, a large road for example which has got traffic running through the night it's likely that the noise level in your home is way above the world health organization's recommended maximum and there are something in the region of eight million people in europe for whom that is true and that's having a devastating effect on their ability to sleep and i would say also you know we can talk about other spaces in a moment in true uh, in hospitals that's true as well That it's very difficult to sleep in many hospitals because of the noise, beeps and hisses and buzzes and, you know, somebody opening a ring binder at the foot of your bed and snapping it open. And these noises will all jolt you out of REM sleep or deep sleep. And sleep is how we heal. Sleep is essential. You know, there's a great TED talk and a great book on sleep, uh, which I, I would recommend to anybody to look at. It's absolutely fundamental. What's his name? I can't remember it now, but uh, go to TED and look up sleep. And it's a recent TED Talk. It's fantastic. Sleep is essential for us to be well. Mm-hmm. And if you can't sleep at night because of noise, it has a devastating effect. You know, yeah. on, it, it makes you ill. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have all sorts of health problems spilling out from that, not to mention clumsy, accident prone, irritable, more inclined to conflict and so forth. Then above that, you've got the chronic effect of noise on people, which is basically working through um, heart and stroke. Those two things are fundamentally increased. Your risk of a heart attack, your risk of a stroke, dramatically increased by your chronic exposure to noise. If you're working in a noisy place, if you're trying to sleep in a noisy place, these are really clear effects, which are well established now um, by many studies around the world. Uh, and so death, ultimately, um, you know, it might be a sudden effect of uh, maybe somebody with a dodgy heart uh, not looking and there's a sudden noise behind them and causes a heart attack. That kind of thing can happen. But much more, it's about the chronic exposure to mm. high levels of noise. And we don't think that much about it. Just the volume of noise, just the level of noise, uh, it, you know, obviously has a hearing damage potential Uh, 85 decibels is the level at which people are uh, employers in europe at least are obliged to offer hearing protection to their workers well you think of people working in bars clubs restaurants where regularly the the noise level in those places is 90 or even 100 decibels they don't wear hearing protection and they're working there for hours a day and the recommended exposure at say 90 decibels in order not to damage your hearing is, you know, minutes. It's not hours. So noise level is an issue. Mm. Construction, transport, uh, those are really big sources of noise in the modern world. And and I suppose one of the very, very few benefits of the COVID nightmare that we've all been through mm. has been that it did make the, the world a bit quiet, a lot quieter, actually. Yeah. You saw those pictures of London, like a ghost town, you know, with no traffic. Mm. So it's a small benefit. And I know it's not much consolation to anybody who's had the disease or lost loved ones to it. But um, I suppose it's good to be grateful for small mercies. But it has given us a taste of what the world is like without this stuff. And I remember that from years ago, actually. I lived under the Heathrow flight path, very close to it. And when that volcano went off in Iceland and flights were stopped, Mm. it was a revelation you know we hadn't noticed every two minutes this roaring noise going on overhead Uh, but when it stopped it's like somebody you know stops pounding you on the head and you've got used to it over years and you go oh that's what it's like to be free so uh, the volume of noise the different sounds outside us and sadly in the built environment Mm. so many places that we create are designed by architects who are obsessed about how things look yeah and basically don't consider how things sound Mm. you know in america an architect will train for probably five years and they're lucky if they spend a week many of them just a day considering sound in that training Mm. so it's not surprising they're totally ocular and it's not surprising they're continually producing spaces that look great and just sound awful and i'm talking about the lemming like rush in the world to open plan every office space based on, you know, it's, it's about as sensible as what happened in the early days of the office, uh, which is to cram everybody in and give them identical workstations. It was called Taylorism after a man called Taylor who designed this make, you know, offices as a machine with people as cogs in the wheel, all in small identical workspaces and just beavering away. Well, it's inhuman. We're still doing it to a degree. Mm. Um, and the, the uh, open planning of everything is based on principles like um, work sharing, communication, team splitting and building, freedom, flexibility, all these kinds of things. But actually, the research is now showing us that even with communication for example Mm -hmm. open plan offices have been shown to reduce people's communication to people around them because people don't like being overheard when they're having conversations so they're much more liable to send email to each other than they are to have a conversation across the desk so (laughs) there are a lot of initial assumptions about this open planning the entire world which are being challenged now and the the Evidence coming back is showing us that actually it's having a devastating effect on people's productivity. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I remember speaking to people in the BBC uh, when I've been into their building many times. And, you know, the BBC, the new broadcasting house in Portland Place in London, interesting building, it's about six stories high, yeah. but the architects hollowed it out. So there's just a vast empty space in the middle of it with balconies around the outside and all the journalists are sat in the basement floor, next to each other, on one floor, fundamentally, and it drives them nuts they 're <laughs> trying to write pieces, and all they can hear around them is other people talking on the phone or whatever. so you end up with an office where everybody puts headphones on, and there 's no communication going on yeah. um, and Of course, once we replace that irritating noise of people talking with music we 're happier it 's a nicer thing, but it 's still distracting because music is a very distracting sound, so productivity is devastated in that kind of scenario yeah. um, and, mm-hmm. it, and it's true also of hospitals where I've mentioned that you know how does anybody get well in those places they're so noisy mm-hmm. 12 times the World Health Organization recommended maximum noise level by day I mean it's shocking and of course schools where mm-hmm. the noise level in classrooms is intense uh, whether or not you've got air conditioning machinery going on. I mean, there's there's projectors or there's whiteboards or, you know, tech in schools yeah. now, computers running, fans going. Mm. And, of course, you've got now group work. So everybody's talking a lot. And the noise level in schools in one study in Germany was average 65 decibels, which is loud enough to have to call out over. You know, I'd have to speak mm. very loud to get attention. So that's why teachers can lose their voice. I mean, one British teacher sued and got damages for losing her voice because she had to shout every day to get people's attention. And not only that, but of course, as you move away from the teacher, it becomes harder and harder to hear what's happening. And who sits at the back? It's the naughty kids. So there are unfortunately millions of children leaving school every year, simply having not heard their education what hope have they got it's hard enough to learn in modern schools without Mm -hmm. that but if you can't hear properly you're having to work so hard you know if you can if if speech intelligibility is 50 percent you you it's not that you can't hear but it's that you're having to do a lot of work to join up the bits you can hear and make sense of it Mm -hmm. so we're asking these kids to work really hard to receive their education It's a bit like watering the garden and just missing the plants altogether with with half of what we're sending out. So, you know, there's this massive focus on sending education and we need to start focusing on does it get received? Are they able to hear it? Mm -hmm. Why don't we teach them to listen so they can actually pay attention?
0: Mm. Yeah. And That comes back to like you know better acoustics and things which we're we're going to touch on very shortly. Um, I mean, obviously, we, we search on the fact that you're a musician as well, and um and, and sounds can have a positive effect on us. I mean, we've we've spoken about this, sort of you know the negative sounds uh, or not being able to hear properly and, and things. Um, but I mean in your book you do talk about Nick Drake, <laughs> which I love as well. So <laughs> um, but um, you know, sort of music and emotion and sort of the psychology, psychological and, phys- you know, physiological sides of things. I mean, what kind of sounds, um, before we sort of go on to like, you know, sort of draw down to the different biophilic design solution potentials, um, but um, what kind of sounds have a positive effect on us?
1: Well, lots of biophilic sound does, which yeah. is why we've used it so much in MoodSonic, mm. um, in locations, including offices mm. and hospitals and educational establishments. So, you know, we, we've been surrounded by nature sound um, ever since we've been human, what, 200,000 years or so. The birds have been on this planet a great deal longer than we have. They've been here for countless millions of years. And so, you know, that's the sound, you know, what my, my friend, uh, Bernie Krauss divides it all, the, all of sound into three classes. And there's geophilia, the sound of the planet. So that, that's something that, you know, in a pleasant way, or the pleasanter types of that are very good for us as well. Babbling brooks, gentle surf, those kind of sound, wind in leaves or wind in corn, you know, those kind of beautiful sounds, not, you know, roaring Antarctic 230 mile an hour gales or um, <laughs> um, massive waterfalls, which are quite intimidating, or the cawing of crows. You know, there are there's plenty, or the, you know, uh, terrifying sounds the planet can make, you know, Krakatoa, mm. uh, deafened people who were 70 or 80 miles away. That's how loud that was. So, uh, yes, there are terrifying sounds in geophilia, but uh, sorry, geophony, not geophilia, geophony. So the sound of the planet. Then Mm. the second class uh, that Bernie uh, distinguishes is biophony, which is the sound of nature. And he calls it the Great Animal Orchestra and indeed collaborated uh, with Richard Blackford on a symphony called The Great Animal Orchestra, which I was privileged to see the preview of in um, Chelmsford, was it? I can't remember where it was, Uh, but uh, it was absolutely beautiful where Mm. they've taken Bernie's astounding natural recordings from all over the world and integrated them into an orchestral work where the orchestra's instruments kind of mimic and respond. There's a call and response going on with the natural sound. And Bernie's thesis really is that there's a place in the frequency spectrum for every animal and in the time of the day as well. So they all know where they sit and they don't conflict with each other so much. They've all got a a place and a time and a way of communicating. And it creates this gorgeous kind of orchestra of sound around us. Some of it not so gorgeous, but some of it very, very beautiful. And then the third class of sound that Bernie distinguishes is anthropocene which is us and okay. most of that's not very nice mm. unfortunately mm. Uh, you know and we've had a big effect on the soundscape of the world really there's a very 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 small part of the world now that doesn't have human sound intruding on it you know Gordon Hempson's one and square inch is a great book about that um I think Bernie says something like um I'm trying to remember the exact numbers some years ago or many years ago, it used to take him, you know, an hour to record a minute of sound. And now it would be many hours. It's that kind of order of magnitude anyway, because there's always somebody with a chainsaw or a leaf blower or there's a plane going overhead. You know, even if you're in the in the middle of Greenland, you're being overflown every two minutes by planes on the way to or from America. They go over that all the time. So it's very hard to find pristine acoustic environments anymore. And mm. uh, that's, I think, rather sad that anthropophony mm. is so unconscious and so polluting mm. in the world. Yeah. So th- the sound around us can be very good for us. Nature sound is there's plenty of musical sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's sound healers around the world. And, I, you know, I don't get into the um, uh, the kind of rather um, metaphysical side of sound very much. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is interesting that we're 70% water, that water conducts sound so well, that sound is bound to have an effect on us in so many profound ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, when you get down to it, sound is vibration. Mm -hmm. And every part of us is vibrating all the time, right down to, you know, subatomic level where the current theory is that the smallest things uh, we know of are strings. This is string theory and these are tiny little like violin strings they're all vibrating mm. atoms vibrate molecules vibrate every part of us is vibrating and has resonant frequencies so I'm sure there's plenty of stuff there just as the drugs that we use these days are mainly almost all I think derived from original natural remedies from plant based um, or you know um, nature based remedies I'm sure that we will discover in years to come as we get better and better at this that mm-hmm. sound has profound predictable uh, responses in us physiologically psychologically mm. and of course cognitively and behaviorally and th- that we need to pay attention to it we need to start designing it so that it's actually good for us
0: mm. absolutely i completely agree it'd be, it'd be lovely wouldn't it if if um everybody took that on board and designed spaces that were acoustically better for us would actually would actually have a positive effect on us not just taking away the negative but actually have a positive effect wouldn't, um, be wouldn't it just exactly and the whole thing about us vibrating i think um is so true and sound you know sound baths and and things you know even if you're not you know i mean people might think that's a bit too hippie or whatever but that's you know that's a very beautiful sound or you know, they're they're very mellow sounds. I mean, you you also, you talk about the different um, levels of sound, what what do you call it, timbre and pitch or something? What was it, I can't remember how you phrased it, but it's, Mm. you know, there's really high pitch sort of sounds and then the low pitch sounds, and we have a different um, inherent uh, reaction to those different levels,
1: Mm. so. We do, yes, I mean, um, the pitch of sound uh, has a different effect on us, it tends to be, that higher frequencies tend to stimulate us nearly, whereas lower frequencies tend to kind of zone us out. Yeah. And you know, I can remember in my music career playing at big festivals and seeing people asleep in bass bins <laughs> with <laughs> huge sound systems pumping out hundreds of decibels of, um, well, well over one hundred decibels of of noise. Well, you wouldn't be able to sleep in a tweeter, but uh, in a bass bin, yes. I mean, there's a reason why. Uh, you know the music that tends to come from the ghettos from poorer places whether that's rap or reggae or whatever is very bass heavy mm. because really bass heavy music kind of takes us out of ourselves takes us away from perhaps you know unpleasant situations and puts us into a a, a much more chilled out space mm. whereas uh, something like Mozart or you know baroque music tends to be much more about higher frequencies and engage us neurally now i'm not proper um supporting the kind of uh, the mozart effect and so forth which was based on one study that was never replicated by anybody um, uh, and ended uh, up causing millions of mothers to be frantically playing mozart to their unborn children on the basis they'd be geniuses well no that's that's a little bit over the top so people do tend to take Uh, you know, the research that's available and run a long way with it. Um, Nevertheless, I think it's pretty clear that there's a great deal about the power of sound that we don't yet understand. Mm -hmm. Um, We we use it intuitively, you know, in music very largely, which is the most common class of kind of consciously created sound in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, these things are all there Uh, There are little hints coming out of research, I mean, such as the piece of research that showed that we tend to vote for politicians with deeper voices. Well, you can rationalise that. Big things tend to have deeper sounds,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and particularly with animals. So an elephant has got a rather deeper sound than a mouse. Mm -hmm. And in general, for survival, it's rather more important to pay attention to big things than to little things. So there may well be a kind of very deep association of depth of sound with yeah. potential threat or importance or significance. Yeah. So we tend to treat people with deeper voices as more authoritative or uh, important than people with higher pitched voices, for yeah. example. Yeah. So it, there's lots of evidence of you know, these kinds of effects. And uh, I'm sure that over the years to come, if we start listening, Consciously, we'll be unpicking these and understanding more and more about the way in which sound profoundly yeah. affects us.
0: Absolutely. Um, I was, if we maybe go on to sort of biophilic design. Um, I mean, obviously, biophilic design offers positive solutions to sort of cure the impact of the sort of negative and, and sort of harmful sound environments. I mean, why do you think biophilic design um, is an important aspect um, to helping improve these?
1: well we've moved a long way from our connection with nature most mm-hmm. of us yeah. um, and it's you know it's sad when you reflect on how close to the soil or how close to nature people were when they were farming by hand when yeah. um, we had you know the rhythms of nature were much more important to us the seasons mm-hmm. uh, you know the day uh, and so forth and in cities, that's not really so much the case. So we've created a kind of nature uh, void
0: mm. around us.
1: And I mm. think it's really important for us, because you know, we're part of nature. I think it's really important for us to reconnect. Mm. And uh, so this isn't, you know, I, I did a nice podcast with Oliver Heath, who I'm, I'm sure you've come across. And mm. um, as he said, this isn't just about bringing a few plants in. Yeah. It's not about bringing nature indoors necessarily. It's about reconnecting. Mm-hmm. At a very profound level, with nature, mm-hmm. and there are rhythms of nature that we can emulate with biophilia. Um, mm-hmm. If we make the biophilia dynamic, I mean, it's one thing to have static biophilia—a nice picture of, you know, a lovely nature scene. Well, that might make you feel good, and it's a, it's a step in the right direction. But if you start to make it dynamic, and flow with with um, you know the rhythm of the day, for example. Mm-hmm. So you know we have these um circadian rhythms that we need to take pay attention to and which um, can be reinforced or can be counteracted depending on what you want to do with different sound you know if you want to have a night shift, which is now we we now know extremely bad for people, nevertheless if you have to have a night shift, then the sound of bird song, which we associate with being awake, would be quite useful to play to yourself to you know. Fool yourself into thinking it's time to be awake and your body would react that way. Mm-hmm. Not good for you, but maybe productive. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, as I've already said, the sound like gentle surf could be very useful for going to sleep too. Um, mm-hmm. I know there are modern equivalents of that. there's uh, It was certainly said that the footballer Wayne Rooney uh, can only go to sleep with the sound of a vacuum cleaner on because that <coughs> is what his mother put on when he was a baby and he used to be able to go to sleep with it and it's now become part of his life Uh, I'm sure he has a recording of a vacuum cleaner now not necessarily having to turn a real one on but (laughs) but there are plenty of those kind of sounds um, which we can get entrained and associate with behaviors Mm. uh, which can become very powerful for us Mm. Um, sound can make us you know fearful and stressed it may be a you know, the voice of somebody who's been horrible to us um, would be something that would immediately set us on edge. Or it might be an instrument or a piece of music we associate with a bad thing that happened to us. So those kind of associations are very powerful. And so sound has this huge kind of uh, ability to to change our state. And most of us will associate lovely natural scenes with peace, tranquility, relaxation de-stressing mm-hmm. happiness uh, enjoying nature all these kinds of things so biophilic sound can be a very powerful way of creating dynamic bio around us mm-hmm. which is good for us it's good for our health and it mm-hmm. can also support us very effectively in our productivity and our thinking because mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know biophilic sound can also do a pretty good job in masking unwanted conversation, particularly mm-hmm. water because we understand conversation largely from the syllables. It's the sorry from the consonants. It's the consonants that allow us to make sense of speech. I don't know if you've ever done that exercise of you know, write something down. If you remove all the consonants and the left with the vowels, you cannot possibly decode what was there. Mm-hmm. If you remove all the vowels, and leave the consonants, it's very easy to see what the words were. Mm-hmm. So when you can't hear consonants and you're just hearing somebody going those kind of sounds mean nothing to us. Yeah. Whereas if you can hear particularly sibilants like s, t, that is how we decode language largely. And of course, water being broadband and particularly energetic at those frequencies is very good at masking. That kind of conversation. Mm. So, uh, biophilic sound can do lots of different jobs in different spaces. It can enhance our well-being. It mm. can also enhance our productivity.
0: That's really interesting. I um, was a couple of things there that I was going to circle back on, but um, one of them was the um, ancient Egyptians. They have their their um, Script, you know, is the pictograms are are the consonants as opposed to the vowels. So as you say, it's kind of like it's an illustrative <laughs> representation of what you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe we could sort of touch on the four different environments. Um, I mean, there's, there's there's so many different environments, but just people who are listening. I know it's a predominantly it's workplace people listening in their homes as well, um, healthcare, and actually in sort of the bigger picture as well in urban urban cities. Um, can you explain maybe sort of one or two positive biophilic design solutions um, that you feel would be really impactful um, in those environments?
1: Well absolutely in the workplace for example um, um, I mean I should say I think there are four simple steps to good design in sonic design or good oral yeah. architecture in any space which are first of all pay attention to the acoustics it's very hard to make good sound in a room with poor acoustics and this is where architects go wrong in the very first place, because they love hard surfaces like stone and steel and glass and so forth, which are all highly reflective. So if you have, you know, your standard open plan office, which has got plasterboard ceiling, it's got plaster walls or brick walls, uh, very often these days, quite a hard floor because they don't want to put, um, and especially with COVID now, we've got to clean everything so it gets more challenging. So carpets have, you know, been out of fashion for a while. I mean, I'd be in, office, in, in offices where you, you have to tell people what shoes they can wear because the floor is stone or tile or something like that. The walls are hard. The ceiling's hard. The desks are hard. There I mean, is nothing re- absorbent in there at all. Mm. And every sound that's made, made uh, in that room bounces off all those surfaces and comes back in a confusing uh, fashion. So uh, it is extremely uh, difficult to, to create good sound in a room with um, poor acoustics like that. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the noise in the in the space, which you have to counteract. Then you've got uh, a sound system. Mm-hmm. If you're going to make sound, you need to have a decent sound system that's able to do the job, not something that was put in for life safety and just alarms. Yeah. And then somebody thinks, oh, we've got, we've got speakers, let's play music. No, <laughs> that does not sound nice. And then, of course, there's the content, which is what we're really talking about, the biophilic sound that you can put in. So in offices, you can, you can counteract, as I've said, you can mask unwanted sound with really pleasing natural soundscapes. You can connect people with the outdoors. I've always thought it's a lovely thing. You know, you could, we can make responsive sound, mm-hmm. sound that responds to sensors. So wouldn't it be nice if it rains outside and you're in this hermetically sealed building with air conditioning? It'd be lovely to have the sound of rainfall inside as yeah. well because that kind of connects you with what's going on in your environment. Uh, Or even, you know, take the sound of the the um, biophony and geophony around you, uh, the appropriate birds and animals, the appropriate natural sound, and put it into the space in some ways. I think one important thing to do is to have different zones. So Mm. one size doesn't fit all. That's really crucial. Uh, some people will want to sit and contemplate or concentrate in certain places. Other places will be more for collaboration or meetings. You know, you don't want to have lots of sound in the meeting room where people are trying. You know, the most important thing is is speech intelligibility. Yeah. So you have to think about what people are trying to do in a space mm-hmm. and help to support them in that space. Mm-hmm. It may be that in a, you know, a cafeteria or a social space, maybe music is the most important or the most useful sound that you can put in there. Maybe it's not biophilia. So, again, it's about deciding what's appropriate in each space and that runs right across offices, hospitals, education. What are we trying to do? Are we trying to stimulate or are we trying to calm down? Are we trying to help people to focus or are we trying to distract them from what's going on if it's boring or unpleasant? Mm -hmm. Um, So those dimensions are very, very important and they would tend to then speak into what kind of tempo or... Uh, volume of sound you want to be using and what actual genres of music or types of biophilic sound or other sound you want to put into a space uh, Mm. in order to make it as pleasant and productive and effective as it possibly can be.
0: Yeah, Um, I'm just just, uh, um, in urban cities, you know, obviously these are so noisy places and, um, you know, you've got traffic and you've got all this kind of thing. Town planners, if they're going to create a better environment for people who are living there, how, what, what, what sort of enhancements could they do?
1: Well, we have to think about creating spaces where uh, there isn't the noise. So yeah. it is possible to muffle, it's largely traffic in, yeah. um, in cities. I mean, it's gonna get quieter because we've got electric vehicles coming, but a lot of the sound of vehicles is tire noise, not engine noise. So yeah. that will have an effect. Um, And that'll be a good thing as well as on pollution. But we can use trees, we can use bushes, we can use, uh, you know, if we have to, we can use screens of some kind, but you have to physically barrier sound. Otherwise it will find a way of getting through. And so you can create parks or environments where there's a, a little bit of silence or quiet for people to go and recuperate in, and that needs to be taken into account in urban planning which it hasn't been in the past Uh, it can be done Mm -hmm. perfectly possible Uh, i remember being in geneva and there's a square outside a church in the middle of geneva where it's almost entirely silent and Mm. it's beautiful so it can be done in different places uh, but it has to be done very
0: carefully absolutely great little havens then so, uh, Julian, many thanks for your um, time here. I'm, I'm conscious that we've, we've been talking. I don't want to hold you up any longer. Um, I could talk to you about loads of different things, about music and the benefits of music and different types of music in different spaces. And gosh, um, but um, so if there's any, nothing, anything else that you'd like to add, um, I'd like to um, ask you, which is the question I ask everybody at the end of these podcasts, <laughs> um, if you could brush the world with a magic brush of biophilia, what would the world look like and sound like?
1: Well, it would certainly sound beautiful. And that's my kind of dream to have a world that sounds beautiful. I mean, we we may have to make noise from time to time, but let's make it consciously as minimal as possible and as appropriate as possible. But it's this unconscious pollution of the world that we need to stop and we can replace that. We need to reconnect with nature very much, both inside and outside of the built environment And we can do that now. We have the tools and technology now that we haven't had before. So there's never been a better time. So, you know, I I would love everybody in the world to start listening and designing their environments and reconnect with nature by surrounding themselves with beautiful biophilic sound.
0: Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.